Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about how Bill Well, Joe Walsh, and the new-founded Lincoln Project uh, all of those people and groups, they're not never Trump, as they like to call themselves. They're really they're really just Democrats. So you can go through my argument on that there. The second column I covered was about how John Roberts has been perceived or seen as a savior by Democrats and the hashtag resistance. And I go through and show how that's another myth and how John Roberts is fulfilling the role that both the founders saw for it and his predecessors in impeachments have followed with the position in the Senate. And then in the newsletter this week, I covered how Adam Schiff and Democrats failed in their impeachment arguments this week, specifically pointing out a key moment in the trial that's been going on this week that where Democrats have been holding their, their case and how Adam Schiff specifically pointed out the story about how CBS reported that allegedly the Trump administration told senators that if they didn't vote how they wanted, that he would put that Trump would put their heads on pikes in the election. And that was a key moment in the trial because it allowed Republican senators, who all said that that was a false statement and it was never said, it allows them to look at to point to Schiff and say that he's the reason that they won't be voting for impeachment. So if you're looking to see why that's the case, you can go and read that. That's what they're going to point to. You can look for it whenever the vote is eventually held, even with the breaking news that's happened as I've been recording this about John Bolton's book and it coming out. At the end of the day, what's going to happen is Republican senators are going to point to Adam Schiff, say that he lied at multiple different points, that if he wanted all this information that would have made impeachment easier, they could have gone and gotten it. If they wanted John Bolton, they could have called him then. This information existed then. All they had to do was subpoena him like he requested, and they didn't. So the Senate is not under any obligation to clean up the House impeachment's mess because the Senate never wanted to hear it to begin with. That's what's going to happen. With all of that, they're going to point to Schiff and how he pointed, he pointed out this story and how it was a low blow in the Senate, and they're just going to say he's a partisan hack. So if you want to read more about that or any of the other two interest you, you, you know, after the show, you can sign up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. That's just the easiest way to get my columns analysis to you. That list isn't for sale, so you don't have to worry about any more spam. You just get my newsletter and the columns coming to you. And finally, if you like what you hear here, enjoy my written work, and just want to make sure you subscribe and review this podcast, you can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get those podcasts. Those five-star reviews help listeners and readers like you find me in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and I look forward to hearing from you and getting those reviews. All right, so we're going to jump into the show this week. I'm covering two things. The big story over the weekend was... Kobe Bryant's death. I don't want to say a few words about him because he means a lot to me. I enjoyed watching him for most of my childhood and all through my adult life and watching him play, and he had a great impact on me on that front. I've got a column coming out on Monday talking about that too. And then the next thing I want to talk about is whether or not impeachment is the new normal. There was a podcast by the folks over at The Dispatch, which I highly recommend you go and subscribe to their products. They've got a great um, slew, just a slew of new newsletters they've put out, particularly the uh, the foreign policy and the daily news one they put out are fantastic. 
and I highly recommend you sign up for those. But they also have some podcasts which are free, and so you can check out the Dispatch podcast in which they do a roundtable discussion. And I'll get into more what they talked about, but I sort of bounce off a discussion that they have over whether or not the minority party going forward will look to impeach more often after this impeachment that Democrats have put together. So those are the topics for today's show, and we'll jump right in. So the first thing I have up here is about Kobe Bryant. He died over the weekend. He died in a a helicopter crash. He lost his daughter there, too, so he survived by a wife and three other daughters, one who was just born this past summer. So it was a very tragic event. They were flying to, I believe it was the AAU camp where he's been coaching his daughter's basketball team, and he was in there with another coach and another young player on that team. So it's very tragic. You have the kids who died, and you have him who, and he's just a giant in the NBA in, in Los Angeles area. And it's just, it's something because he's, he's a player everyone watched grow up. He was one of those first guys in the NBA who, when he came in, he came in as a high schooler. So he was the youngest player to ever set foot on an NBA court and score points. And so we got to watch him grow up. He turned 18 on his first year in 96. And that was a legendary class too. It had Allen Iverson and a bunch of other guys too. And he ended up being the best out of them, one of the best ever straight out of high school. And so he's one of these athletes who came in right at the edge of the internet age and grew up with it. And so everyone got to see him grow up from high school, literally till the day he died because he was doing things in Los Angeles that got him an Oscar. I think it was last year he won one for his work on deer basketball, talking about retiring from the sport. And so he he defined an entire generation of basketball players. In my column, I talk about how when I was watching, the key moment for me was the 98 year. So he's a couple years in, and he's becoming that all-star. And everybody was starting to compare him to Michael Jordan that year, and that was Jordan's last title run in 98. And people were looking at Kobe and saying, well, he's got the skill set, and he's already started appearing like he could be the guy, the guy who is the next Michael Jordan and of course, with Kobe, because he skipped college, like Michael, he had to grow up and grow into that NBA-style player, and that took him a little bit, And but he was still great. And he, he didn't just define his generation of players, he set the standard for future generations. You see the ones who come after him, like Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and those guys, and even LeBron, you see that generation, and they all look to Kobe. And in this new generation, the ones after those guys, they all revered Kobe. You saw Devin Booker and uh, Trey Young. They they both had tributes to to Kobe, and I think they combined their combined score was eighty one points tonight, which was and on twenty four shots apiece for each of them, which is Kobe's number. And he shot eighty one points against Toronto. That was his big game and so it's just it's something to to look at all of that. The other cool thing that he did was he he was helping build up the NBA because his daughter, the one who died with him in the plane crash, was also looking to play eventually in the WNBA. She had she was showing all the similar skills of her father. And so it's just it's he represented this generation shift uh in the NBA. He was the standard that everyone looked up to. And he was the bridge gap between 
everyone before him who looked at Michael Jordan and everyone after that who only heard about Jordan. He sort of bridged this pre-internet and the current internet generation. And I think it's kind of fitting that his last tweet is him congratulating LeBron James on passing him and scoring and sort of passing the baton to him, telling him to help build up the next generation of players. And that tweet's literal now because now LeBron James is that player. He uh, he is that guy that everyone looks to and lo- thinks that they have to emulate, sort of like Kobe's role. And I don't, <clears throat> I don't know who will be that person even after that, but for the previous generations, it was Kobe Bryant all the way. So he was truly a great player, and so it's awful what happened with his family. It's awful what happened to the other people who happened in the plane crash when, and the NBA and just everyone in general. They were practically setting up a shrine at the Staples Center. They were holding the Grammys there, and so the police were having to get people to not <laughs> stack stuff up there in front of the Staples Center because they have the big event tonight. But people were still there. Because he meant so much to Los Angeles. He was, he epitomized that city in a very powerful way. Uh, and and what's becoming, becoming more common, I don't know, we, if you could call it gross or just wrong, in these big celebrity deaths that happened, the media is just truly awful. TMZ was the first company that, the first... Yeah, the first site that was reporting this and releasing information. And according to reports, TMZ got that information and released it to the public before Kobe's family even heard about it. And that's just disgusting. L.A. police were blasting them for doing this, that they were not even able to complete an investigation and inform the Bryant family or any of the other families of what had happened. And this information was already public, and the family was hearing about this and getting asked questions about it before the police had even had a chance to contact them. And so these journalists and media companies are so caught up in who is going to be first and who gets the scoop that they're creating these situations where families are being caught getting asked questions about a situation they know nothing about and because they're beating the authorities and it's just wrong on multiple levels. And then you have, on the other side of that, on the flip side of that, you have the media then going and waiting for these moments when NBA players or coaches or executives find out about Kobe Bryant dying. And Kobe meant a lot to the entire NBA. And then they're throwing, thrusting a microphone in front of them immediately after them finding out, trying to get their reaction. And that's also... Sick. I mean, I, I have a note written down here just as I was preparing for this. There's just the only word I could come up to describe it was vultures because they're just waiting for their moment to pounce on all these people to get clicks and views on somebody else mourning and being shocked in that moment. And then to top it off, you have the other sets of journalists and reporters who then use that to say, oh, you know, he died, but here's all the awful things in his life, and he was truly awful, and you should think this about him. And it just it's this toxic mix that social media brings out because you have access to what everybody's thinking at once, and these journalists who have access to these big media brands can magnify their reach even more because they appear more credible than others. And so in all these unique and different ways, they're just these forms of vultures who are 
you just get sick watching this because they pounce on all these people who are reacting in real time to a real loss, both in the NBA and in the country overall, because Kobe had a very far reach. He was an international sensation. He had friends, I mean, some of his friends internationally were some of the biggest soccer players in the world, people who are known everywhere. They may not be as well-known to your average person on the street in America, but they are well-known everywhere else. And as such, that also gave Kobe Bryant an international reach. So he had this huge platform and this huge reach, and he did a lot of good in the world. And watching journalists use this and show absolutely no decency, either in releasing information before the family even knows or attacking his legacy or anything else, it, it just It's wrong to see that in the moment when this is happening, when you can go and look at Los Angeles and see the people mourning there in the streets who are all laying down flowers and candles and other things to show a memorial to Kobe and what he meant to their community. So rest in peace to Kobe Bryant. He's the closest thing to Jordan that we've had since Jordan in my mind. LeBron James is his own unique type of player. You compare him to others. Kobe, you compare directly to Jordan just from his skill set and who he was. And he was a lot of fun to watch on that level. And we put our prayers up for his family, his daughter, and for the others who are involved in that crash. Very sad. And that's all I've got on that. Uh, It was big over the weekend, and it really impacted me because he was one of my favorite players growing up. Again, you can check out my column where I talk through just, you know, growing up with Kobe and watching him grow up as well. So look for that on Monday. And after the break, we'll get back and we'll talk about whether or not impeachment is the new normal. And we're back. I wanted to talk in this segment about about impeachment and whether or not and its role. Well, talk about impeachment, its role in society and whether or not we are to expect impeachment become this new normal where a minority party, when it comes into power, like the Democrats now who are in control of the House, or think of the Republicans when they took over the House in 2010. So you have the minority power who doesn't have control of the Senate and they don't have control of the White House. And whether or not they're going to start using the House now more regularly as a form of impeaching the president. Because in this weird way, we've only had three impeachments in our history now. Four, if you're willing to go in and count, if you're willing to count the Nixon, who would have been impeached, had everything gone four, they forced him to step down. But of those four, three have have happened really since... Since Nixon Ford, we've had three here. So in the last 40-ish years here, three of our presidents have been impeached, 40, 50 years. And in the previous, you know, 150, close to 200 almost, you have only one impeachment happen, and that's in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. And there was an actual trial in that case, and it was a very close vote. There were high tensions on whether or not he actually would have been removed. So there were a lot of valid reasons in that one. And now it's becoming a more common occurrence, it seems like anyway. You have Clinton, and now you have Trump, and you had a lot of discussion about it, even under Bush and Obama. And so the question is whether or not this is the new normal, where the parties who are out of power are going to use that as a means of a battering ram against the 
administration that's in power. This discussion came up, I mentioned this at the top, after I was listening to the Dispatch podcast, and they were discussing discussing whether or not the Democratic impeachment signals a new era where the minority party will always move towards impeachment. Now, their panel was split on this question. David French and Jonah Goldberg said no. They thought that you still needed a situation where the president committed some kind of extreme wrong in order for impeachment to take place. And then Sarah Isger Flores, she and Steve Hayes both said that, yes, it signaled a new normal, and they went back and forth on that point. It was a very helpful discussion, a very interesting discussion. They could have gone on it for a little longer, I thought. But in my point here is I think I would agree that it is the new normal, and they didn't cover why I thought so. And this is why I'm going to talk through it here, because it's a lot of points, and I may write this up in, in a future piece But I wanted to sort of talk through it now and talk through why I think politics have changed. I've hit on some of these points in some of my longer pieces in the newsletter over the last few years. But this sort of summarizes everything and crystallizes it in the sense of how politics has changed and how moving forward, the move towards impeaching the president will be used more and more. And I think... There are three or four reasons why this is the case. Now, the first reason why impeachment is going to happen more often is that political parties are weak. Now, in the past, if you wanted to impeach a president, you had to convince the party to do this. So the party had to come to an agreement that impeachment was needed and was going to happen. And this was true even under under the Clinton administration, when Republicans impeached him, they had to come together as a party to impeach him. There was no outgroup that forced them to do this. This was a political decision that they made, and everyone else reported on it, but this was a party decision. This was true under the Johnson impeachment, and it was also true under the Nixon impeachment. The parties decided that that was going to happen. And that's why Republicans were the ones who told Nixon he needed to step down because impeachment was coming. And if he wanted to avoid that, he had to step down. So these were party decisions. One of the things Republicans under Nixon feared was that they were going to get wiped out in the midterms if Nixon was still in office with this hanging over their heads. The weird thing now is that the dynamics have flipped almost entirely. So in the 70s, Republicans feared they would get wiped out with the president on the ballot. Now it's the opposite. Republicans now are fearful that if they don't support Trump, they will be the ones who get hurt on the ballot. So it's this switch of power dynamics where the parties have lost power and you're seeing this be replaced by other either people or institutions. And so you see this from in Jonah Goldberg and a bunch of other people who write about politics. They've been pointing to a while about how the political parties are the weakest that they've ever been. And this is a point that I agree with, too. And that's partially because they have functions that have been replaced by other groups. So, for instance, the media is the big one here. The media does a lot of the vetting process for both ideas and candidates in the party selection process. So in the past, you would have had... 
the establishment of these parties sort of work through and you they would push people forward who they wanted to be the nominees, whether this was backroom deals, if you go way back, or it was just them encouraging certain people to run over others and getting the party backing behind it through money, resources, and other things. That's not true anymore. That function's almost entirely gone to news organizations. So in the Democratic uh, nominating process, you've seen CNN in particular step up where they've pretended to be some kind of neutral arbitrator. But in reality, they're pushing the Democratic Party's agenda. They've had for the last two or three weeks here, they've laid out multiple hits on Bernie Sanders, and that's because the Democratic establishment is freaked out about Bernie Sanders. They would rather have Elizabeth Warren win than they would rather have Bernie Sanders. And so now you're seeing all these opposition hits start coming out that are nailing nailing Bernie on all these different fronts, and they're happening now because Democrats are trying to slow his momentum heading into the Iowa caucuses. And it also works right now because Bernie can't really say anything. He's stuck in an impeachment trial. So they're wailing away at Bernie at this key time, trying to drop his numbers. Now, ironically, I don't think this is working. But the key point here is that this is not the Democratic Party doing this. These are journalists who know what the party needs and are doing this free of charge for the party. The other group that steps in here are super PACs and also just PACs in general. And these all popped up after the Supreme Court passed down the Citizens United question. And in that case, which I think was decided correctly, the court talked about money in politics. And under the campaign finance laws there, what the court learned and what the government argued was that the government was seeking the ability to ban things like books that had any kind of politicking in them if it was written by a corporation. And in particular, in this case, the government was trying to shut down a group from airing an anti-Hillary Clinton movie, which they said was being done illegally. So it was the ability of the government to ban certain types of speech on the grounds of the type of money that was used to fund it. So this was just blatant censorship. The court struck it all down. I know Democrats enjoy pointing that case as when our politics went wrong. That's not really the case here. Money in politics was already a thing before that, and you can't use an unconstitutional law to get rid of something that you don't like. If you want to stop this, you need to come up with a constitutional solution, not an unconstitutional one, and the court got that case correct. But where we are now is that these super PACs in particular are performing functions of party funding, candidate funding, when a candidate can no longer keep their super PACs alive, you know they're pretty much dead in the water because that means they effectively have no funding at all and are useless. So you have the media, super PACs, and then the next stage is social media and individual politicians. And so the grassroots can be done away from the party. They have no control of that over social media. If a certain narrative pops up on social media, it can be driven and exploded without the party doing anything. And then you have individual politicians and individual activists who have more power than people in the party. So in the Republican Party, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, and there's some other activists out there, they all have more power than the Republican Party in general. 
The same is true for Democrats. Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, each one of these individuals has more power and sway than the overall Democratic Party. They can move things in the party that the overall party can't do anymore. And that's what's happened with impeachment. Nancy Pelosi does not believe impeachment was smart politics. That's why she avoided it for so long. But the hard left base wanted that fight really, really bad. So they were willing to push her to get the result that they wanted. So the party infrastructure here, because you gave truth serum Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, they would not want impeachment at all. They would rather focus on just about anything else than impeachment. But that's the place where we are. These individuals have more power over the party than the party establishment, and so the party establishment is having to ride the wave of all these different factions who are driving politics forward. So that's the first part. Political parties are weak, which allows extreme moves like impeachment become more viable paths more viable political paths than they were in the past when the central parties could exert control and stamp down these efforts to push for impeachment or other extreme measures. Now, the second thing that's changed here is that political incentives have changed. The incentives that drove politicians and all the players involved in politics has shifted over time. The first major thing here is that we have this outrage culture that's focused on clicks on these websites and website revenue. And so the more outrage you keep people in, where you keep them in this constant cycle, you can keep clicks to your website going and you can keep money flowing in either through advertising or donations as you're trying to get more people to join on to your cause. And so this outrage keeps that circle and keeps those donations flooding in. So this incentivizes the behavior to constantly show that the other side is always doing something extreme that deserves a answer. So the minority party, particularly one that's just in the House, needs to drum up action to in order to swing the pendulum, to swing the political pendulum against their opponents. And so the push to impeachment gives them this future goal. So they can say, well, we're investigating as hard as we can. We need power in the House and so that we can have this oversight to see whether or not impeachment needs to happen. And this is our way of checking the executive branch and checking the Senate and all of their powers. So this is what they're looking for overall, to have this power and to have this ability to check things Now, all the while, while this is happening, it allows that minority party to invalidate the opponent. Because you're pushing towards some sort of impeachment goal, what you're effectively saying is that the other side is invalidated somehow, and you need to be given power to fix the problem. And since you have this outrage machine churning out all this information and getting people worked up over time, it allows you to paint the picture that impeachment is the only answer. So these groups can say, you know, Obama was awful, Trump is awful, Bush is awful. These people are just so awful that they have to be kicked out via some form of impeachment. 
even if the politics are bad. They can say, we're working towards this and we just need more power and more time to kick this person out of office. Now, the irony is neither party, I don't think, is going to come anywhere close. They need to, the majority they need in the Senate to ultimately do this. So it's only about whether or not they can get a majority in the House to agree to this. But that's the point. They want control of these committees so they can say that they're being a check on the executive branch. And that allows them to raise their relevancy and gain more seats in the end. So that's the second thing. These are the political incentives and these are the shifting political realities on the ground. The third thing is that we have this ever ratcheting up of political gamesmanship on both sides of the political aisle. So the parties right now are locked into a lot of zero-sum politics. The best example of this is on judges and the fight that we've seen grow over time. It started when Democrats decided that they weren't going to let Bork onto the court. Then they attacked Clarence Thomas. You had Harry Reid. Started, he started blocking for the first time. A slew of George W. Bush's judges, most notably Miguel Estrada, who they blocked almost purely on the ground that he was Hispanic. They didn't want Bush to be able to nominate a future Supreme Court justice who would be Hispanic. They explicitly barred him. There were memos that came out from Harry Reid's office that he was explicitly racist on that point, and no one's ever bothered to call him on the floor on that for years, but that's just who he is, and that's who the media is on this front. And then all of this has been capped off now by Mitch McConnell nuking the judicial filibuster and just ramming through all the judges that he wants across all the vacancies across the federal circuits. And that's the new reality now. Any party that has power in the Senate is going to get through whatever judges that they want, or if they're the minority power and they have control of the Senate and the president disagrees with them, they can hold off and prevent the president from appointing the judges that he wants in power. And that's just a reality. That's the zero sum that we've hit here because things have become so hard-lined and politicized through the years. And that's just one avenue where judges now are being shoveled in like coal into you know, a furnace. And the judges' example is just one thing. The GOP learned their radicalness from Harry Reid through the Bush years. The opposition that the GOP showed to Obama was what Harry Reid started doing in the Senate when he got power, both by stonewalling judges and stonewalling various legislative efforts. That was what he started. That's what Pelosi helped him when she finally gained power in 2006. So you see these ratcheting up of different things. And Harry Reid didn't learn his, his tricks in a vacuum. He also was responding a lot to what happened during Gingrich's days. And Gingrich was responding to stuff before him. So you see the steadily ratcheting up with each generation of politicians. They go harder and they go farther than the prior group. So Benghazi here was the real change point here. Because that investigation that Republicans launched on that front directly impacted the result of the 2016 election. It opened up originally as an investigation looking for things into Benghazi, but what changed is through that you find out about Hillary Clinton's emails. So that story ends up going on as, a, as just a slow fuse that explodes on Hillary in October. So between the Benghazi um, the hearings that happened on that front and then Anthony Weiner and all of his sexting, 
those two events pretty much single-handedly combined to help take out Hillary Clinton in 2016 that paved the way for Trump to win. And so the lesson here, if you're a lot of these, these politicians looking for something to do, is that you need to have these investigations. You need to have these, you need to check, and because you, you need discovery really is what they're wanting. They want to claw out and get anything that they can from these administrations because the point is you may not have anything interesting with your current investigation, but if you're able to keep on digging, you're going to get something that you can use eventually. And so each side is incentivized to both fight and oppose these sorts of games as much as they can. And ultimately, this is what's culminating now in this current version of impeachment, which is being done on purely partisan grounds. As I've said many times, Trump's actual actions that he took on that phone call, those are absolutely impeachable. But I don't think he's crossed the political barrier that you need to to have an impeachment. Just because you've made taken a legal act that is impeachable doesn't mean that you've crossed the political threshold where the public thinks you need to be removed from office. And we just haven't hit that point. Nowhere close to it yet. You need to have a two-thirds majority in the Senate, and there's nothing close to the polls even remotely suggesting that we're near a two-thirds majority for anything. So that's where things sit on that front. You have the ratcheting up of political gamesmanship, you have political incentives that are changing, and you have a very weak set of political parties who are incapable of stopping anything. They're basically letting through anything that happens to them. That's why Nancy Pelosi, for all her her past where she was a political master, when it came time for impeachment, she basically just had to do whatever the party told her to do. She couldn't stop anything. She could guide it, but she couldn't stop what the party wanted. So I think this is just going to keep going. You have these incentives, you have these weaknesses, and they're just going to keep getting exploited until something changes. Specifically, the incentives need to change, and the power structure within these parties also needs to change. And what I think is going to happen instead is that we're just going to continue on this front, although the next round, if, for instance, if Republicans end up being the out party sometime in the near future here, the way this is played will be different. So instead of working towards impeachment, I think the next person who has to control this process will work instead towards censure. So they won't go as high as impeachment. They'll threaten it in order to keep everything going there, but they'll step back and go with censure instead for the president, the next president, and choose that as their path forward because the politics of that are almost invariably more, they're easier to follow through on. So you can have that vote, and you don't have to have the question of whether or not you need to kick the person out of power, but you can, in a way, hold them accountable for their actions and still have all these investigations. So I think you're going to see the next minority party investigate the president and then settle in on a censure or hammering out or hammering away at lower officials. So they'll either censure the president or they'll try to get as many of the people underneath the president knocked out of office because that'll be easier than impeachment. That's the smarter political play. Now, whether or not they can hold back and prevent an impeachment is another matter, but because both parties now have experienced and gotten a bad taste of how bad the politics are for impeachment, especially if you don't have anything close to the required 
number of senators to get get a removal. I just don't think you're going to see them want to do this, so they're going to look for ways to release that impeachment pressure, and censure is the next obvious candidate. And after that, it's targeting cabinet officials and others in the administration where you can take out and accomplish a lot of the same things, but not have to go down the road of an actual impeachment. So that's sort of where I think things are going to go, and that's a better answer instead of always marching down the road of impeachment. But the problem is the incentives and the power structure to continue along with impeachment are going to continue. And this is why I think impeachment is more likely in this future until you get these incentives changed. And the irony here is is that the president has term limits. Now, if we didn't have term limits on the president, I think impeachment makes a lot more sense of a power to give Congress because it's an ultimately a check. Because if a person keeps getting reelected, you need to have some kind of check where you can remove them with cause. But with term limits... I think the case, the case for using impeachment is a lot smaller just because the person can only last two terms. So that's going to limit the amount of damage that they can do overall in the office, even if they have committed an impeachable act, unless it's just truly abominable behavior. But otherwise, the person's only going to be in power for at most eight years. And if the acts that they've committed are truly heinous, you're only talking four years. And that's just not a ton of time, especially when you've got changeover in the House and Senate coming every two years. So I think with term limits on the presidency, the case for going through with impeachment is a lot weaker than anyone wants to admit because you have these people who are going to get kicked out eventually. They can't stay forever. And I know it's popular among the most far left hashtag resistance people to think, oh, well, what if Trump keeps office? And it's just ridiculous. It's just nonsense on stilts to be thinking that a person is just going to violate the law just to keep power. Yes, it happens in other countries. It hasn't happened here. And painting that as a potential possibility is just sheer ridiculousness. So that's all I've got on that topic. If you've got thoughts on it, feel free to reach out to me and tell me whether or not you think impeachment is the new normal. So questions, comments, or corrections, or feedback, you can again get that contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter, at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews and help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then... I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.